Season 4 of Angel is brought to you by LinkedIn. You already know LinkedIn is the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. Go to linkedin.com slash angel and get a $50 credit towards your first job post. Assure is the leading provider of special purpose vehicles and fund administration. With over 5,000 completed transactions and $2.5 billion under administration, Angel listeners can get 20% off their first SPV at assure.co slash angel. And NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Schedule a free product tour and receive your free guide, Six Ways to Run a More Profitable Business, at netsuite.com slash angel. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Angel. This is season four, and we've had an amazing, amazing season Episode one, Sarah Cannon from Index Ventures. She brought it. Dan Rose was on episode two. He's at Co2 uh, and started their seven eight hundred million dollar early stage fund. One of the only people I know, actually the only person I've ever met, who worked both for Jeff Bezos and Zuckerberg. If you haven't seen that episode, go ahead and check it out. George Zachary, my friend, uh, the low key legend of Silicon Valley uh, from CRV, was on the pod for episode three. And Sarah Tavel, the latest partner over at Benchmark, which is a really hard firm to become a partner at. They all have equal economics, and it's a very difficult seat to get, is on episode four. We were just cooking with oil. And today is no different. Today we have David Cowan, who is from Bessemer Venture Partners. He's been a venture capitalist since 1992, which I think was George Bush president when you started? Who was president at that time? I was, yeah, moving from Bush to to, uh, Clinton. yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did you get started in venture capital? I, I, uh, I drove there. You just drove actually. there, yeah. I no did. cab. Um, I I was working at Oracle as a product manager, and uh, somebody told me that I said, "What's this room over here?" They said, "That's the boardroom. That's where the venture capitalists are." And I remember that my wow. dad had told me once, long time ago, that you know you should look into this venture capital thing because you like you're you're a startup kind of person, and um, and I said, who are these venture capitalists? I didn't know anything about them. There was no tech crunch at the time. There was no, I didn't know any names of any firms or any people. All I was told was that they're all at 3000 Sand Hill Road. So I got yeah. myself a paper map because that's what we had in 1992. Yep. And I got on my Mazda and I drove over to 3000 Sand Hill Road, parked the car, got out, started walking around. And literally knocked on doors like a sociopath. Uh, I didn't knock. I, no. I actually, like a true sociopath, I just barged right in and I said to the receptionist, hey, does the, does this venture capital company uh, hire summer people? Because yeah. you know, I I know about I'd like networks to be and one of the summer people, also known as interns. Uh, well, okay. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and she said, no, we don't. No, no summer people. No summer. No, we don't. We don't and work I, at the summers. And I said, well, any of these venture capital companies around here, any of them hire summer people? And she said, yeah, I think so. I said, well, who? Yeah. And she took out a book called the Western Association of Venture Capital uh, and Directory, and she circled five names on them, and she gave it to me. Um, I wish I knew who this woman was. I'd go buy her a car now because uh, <laughs> I, I went home, and I pulled out my PC with the dot matrix printer, and I sent out five letters. Uh, one of those letters was to TA Associates. They hired me for the summer. Another letter was to Bessemer Venture Partners. They did not hire me, but I stayed in touch with them. Um, and, uh, and when I was out of business school, they took pity on me and gave me a job. That is hilarious. The chutzpah to go to 3000 Santo Road, which today still is like the epicenter of, uh, venture capital and just literally 
not even knock on the doors. Just ask, hey, you got a sl- you got a spot for me, and yeah. they gave you the directory. It was different back then. It wasn't as glamorous an industry yeah. today. They'd probably call security, and I'd be out of my butt. But yeah, you it probably worked. wouldn't have made it past parking for fifteen right. minutes. There's probably security everywhere now. Yeah, uh, today and, you have to be way more qualified. Yeah, I. What? Who were the venture capitalists, and how did they get their jobs back then? And then how do they get their jobs now? So when you're hiring now as an elder statesman at Bessemer, what do founders, who do founders want to work with and who are you trying to hire versus back then, who were people hiring for those seats? Yeah, well, uh, that's a really good question as to who the venture capitalists were back then. I think in general, they were people who came out of other areas of finance, some of them came out of some old line industries like semiconductors, mm. but for the most part, they came out of uh, came out of finance. Yeah, uh, there really was not a lot of specialization like there is today. When I joined Bessemer Venture Partners, I was I was given the tech beat. Okay, the tech beat, the tech beat. Right. So there was a retail investor and a bank investor and a biotech investor, and and they and they let me invest in in tech. tech. Yes. And so I got to tell you, being the Tech investor in the 1990s. Yeah, pretty was good a gig. Pretty good gig. Yeah, yeah. They're like, by the way, there's going to be a huge number of waves coming. Here's a surfboard. You're the only person on the beach. That that's that that was it. Yeah, they're like, here's the North Shore. Better luck, all you. Better lucky than smart. Uh, timing is everything, but then also that ability to say yes to something. Like I, I just heard about this thing. It's intriguing, and it's something that I see is missing in a lot of young people today. Is like. They just don't seem to have that spot or that, like, I'm just going to walk in and see what happens, right? They just assume the system's rigged. They can't get the job. But today, it feels like it's never been more open, right? Like, yeah, people I... are starting micro funds of $1 million on AngelList, and they're 25 years old. Yeah, the whole idea that you get out of college and then you get an entry-level job at some corporation and work your way up for years and years and years, I don't think anybody buys that anymore. No. <clears throat> you make your own path. What are people looking for today? When you start thinking about what makes a great mm-hmm. investor in 2020, who to found? Because you're trying to hire people that founders want to work with. I think is the key, right? Yeah. Well, there's there's um, we're looking for people who are who are, you know, there's all kind of characteristics that you can imagine people look for in investors. Um, I'll skip kind of the the normal ones that you'd expect, being smart and and having integrity and working hard and all that. Um, I I think much more important than any kind of domain experience is intellectual honesty. Hmm. So people who are, <clears throat> excuse me, people who are, who are comfortable learning from mistakes, acknowledging their mistakes and their failures, talking about them. And, and, and that's, that's a big thing. And then the other one is, I would say, the courage to leave your sweet spot because one thing about being a venture investor over a long period of time is you can't just have one strategy. Every strategy plays itself out. You have to constantly reinvent yourself. At Bessemer, which is the longest running venture firm in the industry, we know that better than anybody. We have to, like I would say our core competence is constantly reinventing ourselves. And so what I love to see in a candidate is somebody who was great at doing something and then stopped and did something different. Huh. That to me is the sign of a really courageous thinker, right? And that dovetails with that first part—that intellectual honesty. Yeah, 
because that means they have it with themselves. They were able to say, you know what, I was in a jazz band and then I was going to be a doctor, but I dropped out of that to go into a startup about, you know, natural foods or something. They, they can actually move from one thing to the other with that courage. Yeah. And they don't let sunk cost stop them. That's Explain like- Explain what uh, sunk cost is to somebody who's hearing that for the first time. Well, <clears throat> okay. I'll tell you an anecdote. I, I, I took my kids to Disneyland and- uh, my son wanted to go on Splash Mountain. Oh, yeah. So we went there. There was an hour line. And I said, well, we're not going on Splash Mountain. No And way. he said, well, what about the singles line? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, singles line, come on. And I follow him past all the people waiting in line. And there's a line there for people who are by themselves. He goes, let's get in that line. Now, this was to get on a ride where you sit in a log. And the log, you only sat, there was like one seat on each row anyway. Right, you're it's not, not like sitting you got, next. You didn't to get to sit anybody, next, next to anybody. Person holding hands. No, exactly. So we got in the singles line, and a minute later, we were sitting in a log and splashing our way through Splash Mountain. And we get out, and he says, "Let's go again." I said, "Okay." We yeah. Get in the singles line again. Yeah, it's great go to have again. kids. <laughs> <laughs> Come out. He goes, "Let's go again." Okay, sure. This is third that's time. The, pretty much the definition of childhood is. <laughs> I have to admit, again, <laughs> I didn't mind. Yeah. We come out. We're soaking wet. Okay. I was like that was great. That was great. And we're walking out. And he says to me, why are all these people still waiting? Why don't they go on the singles line? Right. I said, I, I don't know. Maybe they don't know about it. Right. So he and I are walking along away from the ride. And we're telling people, hey, the singles line right. is a minute long. The singles line is a minute long. Now, we are soaking wet. So there's right. no doubt that we just went through this ride. There's evidence. Right? There's evidence, right? And people are looking at us. And I look back and I was expecting this mob of people to go to the singles line. And there's not a single person. No venture capitalists in that Nobody line. Nobody moved, right? No venture capitalists I couldn't in that understand. Line. And we're yeah. walking and we get to finally the beginning of the line. And someone says to me, what, there's a there's a minute? I said, yes, yeah, just a minute. And he, said, he turns to his friends and I could see them going. Bzz, bzz, bzz. He's saying, bzz, bzz, and they're saying. Bzz, bzz. Yeah. And then his shoulders just slump and he stands there. All these people were waiting in line and they thought, I spent half an hour waiting in this line. I'm right. not giving that up now to go to do something else. And that's sunk cost. That's some cost. Yep. Sometimes you got to get out of something that was a mistake. Yeah. But the exactly. fallacy of you got that sunk cost keeps people in a bad investment or a bad line. Yeah. And or it takes courage to get out of that line and say, you know what? I'm going to give up this 30 minutes for this other opportunity. Yeah. And we do it in our lives all the time. We're, we're wedded to certain ways of thinking about our lives. And I mean, beyond investment, you know, we subscribe to certain frameworks about reality and and as we get older, some for some people, it's hard to give those up because they feel like they have so much vested in them. Yeah. And VCs are obsessed with thinking about thinking and decision making. Like we're here we are, we're, in the, we're just in the first inning and we're already we're talking about sunken cost and intellectual rigor and the ability to be intellectually honest. Why is it that VCs think about thinking and decision making so much? Because we have nothing to do. I, that was exactly what I was thinking. I mean, it's not like a real job, right? <laughs> we sit there, we meet people, and then we say yes or no. And then the rest of the time, we think about the yeses and nos we gave previously. Exactly. The literal job is deciding if you're going to play these two cards or not, and then obsessing over the cards you already played. Yeah. And how badly you played them, how well you played them. The, the, the funny thing is it's really people appropriately mock VCs because in a way it's a super easy job running around and you know spending other people's money saying yes and yes and no 
and having, you know, much less accountability than the, the entrepreneurs who are actually building things. Um, and that's all, you know, guilty as charged. It is, it is a very, very easy job to do, but it's a very difficult job to do well. Hmm. Um, right? I mean, you're saying yes and no. Easy to say yes and no. Sure. But saying yes and no to the right things, that's, turns out, that's the rub. Yeah, that is <laughs> the rub. And if you want to do that well, then you got to got to put a lot of work into it. Hey, everybody. Instead of me reading you copy in an ad about LinkedIn Talent Solutions, I thought, you know what would be a great idea? Who made LinkedIn Talent Solutions? Who's the product manager? Give me the head of product, and let's talk about why this product is so awesome. We've had so many great hires with me today. Blake Barnes, the head of product for LinkedIn Talent Solutions. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. Big fan. All right. Uh, thanks for that. Hiring is a, is, a, is a tough journey, right? I mean, what we talked about how what you want to be doing is growing your business, and you'd be wanting, you want to find your qualified candidates quickly. And so we're just always looking for ways to get you more information, get you more insight to help you to do that. Screening questions are one of them. You know, we also build our platform in a way that you pay for performance, right? So you don't pay one lump sum for when you're posting a job. You pay for the candidates that you receive. Right. And then we build all sorts of smart things in the process to make it faster and easier. So, you know, we talked about how candidates might not be the right fit. You sounds like you've experienced a fair share. <laughs> I think everybody's experienced right? that where you're like, you come into the meeting and it's like, oh, wait a second. Is this a fit? And the person's like, no, it's not a fit. It's like, well, what do we do now? So you want to be talk able to, for 20 minutes and, yeah. and gracefully end the meeting. You want to be able to filter the people that aren't a right fit out earlier, and you want to be able to let them know that it wasn't the right fit. It's it's only fair to let them hear back. Right. And so we can build, we've built tools using these screening questions and using automated systems that help you to automatically tell candidates that they're not the right fit for the role. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and you get the first 50. 5 for free for my man Blake. Just visit LinkedIn.com slash Angel, A-N-G-E-L. Again, LinkedIn.com slash Angel. And you get 50, 5-0 right now. Terms and conditions apply because they're giving you 50. Thanks again, Blake, for coming on the pod. And thanks for this big stack of 50s here for me to give out to all the Twist fans. The Happy Angel to fans. be here. And of course, anytime. And that's where the thinking about thinking comes in because you're like, hey, I passed on Google. I passed on YouTube, whatever it was that you passed on. You've been looking at my Andy portfolio. Well, I mean, it, literally you passed on those two. <laughs> Or what are those? Have you seen my anti-portfolio? Have you no. seen Bessemer's anti-portfolio? Oh, I know about it. Explain okay. to people what the anti-portfolio is. Well, in, and what's um, in it, and then let's—I'll get some tissue. I'll get a tissue box here, and then we can talk yeah. about what's in it. Well, there's um, there. So it, it, this goes. This dates back to 1999. Uh, there were a lot of firms who were just pounding their chests about being masters of the universe and telling entrepreneurs that if you're not with us, you're you're not going to have a successful company. Hmm. We make you. We're the kingmakers. Wow. And I, my partners and I didn't believe that. And we didn't, and we didn't, that was not the message we wanted to give entrepreneurs. Um, and so I thought maybe our website could be more useful. Maybe we can share our mistakes with entrepreneurs to learn from them. Yeah. So I thought maybe we'll have like a, a hall of shame where we talk about the bad investments we made next to the good ones. But then I realized there may be entrepreneurs or co-investors who aren't as, say, uh, okay with this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind are. of dunking on people who failed. It's exactly. kind of kicking somebody who tried really hard, exactly. hopefully. It's, it's more than just shaming ourselves. Those are shaming all, yeah, all the- Yeah, dragging parties. other people So into I said, it. okay, maybe instead what we could talk about are there actually much more important errors. Those are the errors of omission. Yeah. What are the great companies that we did not invest in? Oh my God, and you just why? It up here. Here's the anti-portfolio. Airbnb, Apple, so, Atlassian, eBay- 
Yeah. Oh, God. And then for each one, you can see, what were we thinking? Because that's when you look at these things, you got to say, what were you thinking? And oh, for my each Lord. One, so here at Facebook, Jeremy Levine spent a weekend at a corporate retreat in the summer of 2004, dodging persistent Harvard undergrad Edward Saverin's rabid pitch. Finally cornered in a lunch line, Jeremy delivered some sage advice. Kid, haven't you heard of Frenzer? Move on. It's over. So literally, you're shaming yourselves. Yeah, that's a free plug for Jeremy Levine. You're welcome, Jeremy. Uh, here's Tesla. In 2006, Byron Dieter met the team and test drove a Roadster. He put a deposit on the car, but passed on the negative margin company, telling his partners, it's a win-win. I get a great car, and some other VC pays for it. The company passed $30 billion in market cap in 2014, now at $140 billion in market cap. If you had invested in 2006, that's probably an under $100 million round. It was the $30 million round, $40 million. Yeah, it's now $100 billion. Yeah, over $100 billion. Yeah. So, so you're talking about five, $10 billion mistake. Yeah. And, and you, take the, the, you take the time to put your names up there and to really uh, force yourselves to think through your mistake. Exactly. I think that's the intellectual honesty and rigor you're talking about before. And perhaps this one is incredible. David Cowan, I don't know if you met this clown, he passed on the Series A round <laughs> saying- PayPal, rookie team, <laughs> regulatory nightmare. True, actually. You got that one right. You actually got the first two right. It was a rookie team with this Peter Thiel, David Sachs, and Elon Musk guy, and Max Levchin. Total rookies. Pre-Elon Musk. Pre-Elon Musk, right, because they had it merged. But you also had this, this Reed Hoffman clown in there. It was a regulatory nightmare. Four years later, $1.5 billion acquisition by eBay. Do you remember that meeting? Sure. I remember. It Who was pitched in Palo Alto. It? Was it Peter Thiel? I, Sachs? No, I, I, that I don't remember. Oh, okay. I remember being in those offices right near the University Avenue yeah. in uh, in in Palo when they Alto. just started yeah. there in Palo Alto. I thought it was a great product, you know, emailing money seemed awesome, but they were completely completely oblivious to regulation and I thought that's going to kill them. Um yeah. that we that mistake actually is one we re- we had repeated a couple of times including at YouTube where we thought that they were going to Yes. They, they would perish from ignoring rights. Yes, the sword um, would drop down and just behead them right. because people were putting SNL clips on. Right. Here's another walk worked, down. I was right at Napster though when I went to visit Napster, and I thought, hmm. and the guy and I and Fanning was saying, "Look at these numbers; they're amazing." Yeah. And they were amazing, and I was thought, "This is awesome! I got to invest in this company." And and then I said to him, "How do you, you know, who whom do you pay for yeah. all the rights to this?" And he said, "Well." Our lawyers don't think that we need to. And then I, I said, I literally said to him, oh, so you're stealing it. Right. Literally, like, this diamond heist was incredibly <laughs> profitable. <laughs> Look at these diamonds, 100% margin. Yeah. Where did you get them? Yeah. From the ground? You dug them up? It's like, no, we took them from a diamond store. <laughs> but, you know, at, at PayPal, they pulled it off. So, Well, here's a great one. Uh, but, oh, and before we go on to this great one, What's really interesting about what we're talking about here is thinking about thinking and thinking about decision making. The Napster decision was the right decision because you would have been embroiled in lawsuits and they went personally after yeah. the board. I remember that, right? Yes. It yeah. was pretty brutal. So the right decision. With YouTube, it was the wrong decision. When you look at those two, was there something with the pattern matching that was different in hindsight? Yes, I think so. Okay. I think it's that, is that, I mean, I I don't think there was anything more to Napster than simply stealing this content and ah, giving it to other one people. One trick pony. Whereas with YouTube, the stealing was a 
was an like a by an accidental byproduct of actually something else that was quite useful for people. So I think because of that, you know, yes. people like they got a chance and they were able to, yeah. you know, fix the problem and still have a fantastic, amazing company. They could point to here is what we're doing. We're letting people put up their personal videos. Exactly. And if people upload stuff that's not supposed to be up there, we can take it down. Or then they came out with the master plan, which was we'll let you claim it and you can take it down yourself and we'll fingerprint it. And if we have your archive of every SNL episode, Saturday Live episode, we'll right. just automatically take it down and flag it for right. you. You but make the decision. YouTube minus stolen content is still is still awesome. Great business. Yeah. Such is he. And this is what being a great venture capitalist is about, is thinking about that decision. How did you play Ace King suited? And how did you play Queens on the same flop? In different situations, the same cards could have radically different outcomes. And the message, I mean, this is this is was helpful for us, but it's also, I think, an important message for entrepreneurs, which is if you come pitch a fancy venture firm and we say no, it doesn't mean you're not going anywhere. It means, it means you're going just, on the hall of shame. You could be could be yeah. on our anti portfolio one Absolutely. day. Absolutely. All right, now I'm going to pass you the tissues here, so you have them. And this is going to be a tough one because <laughs> this is the this is the this is the one that's probably hard. So take a deep breath. Dave I try not to look. Don't look. I'll go read it to you. Just Dave Cowan's college friend rented her garage to Sergey and Larry for their first year. In 1999 and 2000, she tried to introduce Cowan to these two really smart Stanford students writing a search engine. Students, a new search engine? In the most important moment of Bessemer, most important moment ever for Bessemer's anti-portfolio, Cowan asked her, how can I get out of the house without going anywhere near your garage? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh, God. It's so brutal. It's so, I had this happen with Masterclass. You know the Masterclass uh, where they teach people how to do stuff? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Are you in that one? No. Okay. So I'm sitting with the kid from Masterclass, David, and he's like, he's like, yeah, we got, here's our first Masterclass. I was like, well, that's a great domain name. I'll take the meeting. If you can get masterclass.com, okay. that takes some level of dexterity, right? Sure. Unless you're registered in 95, which you didn't. He bought it. I was like, okay, good get. That's a good get. Show me. And he goes, well, we got Dustin Hoffman. Here's the clip. I was like, that's incredible. How did you get Dustin Hoffman? He's like, well, my dad's friends with him. And I was like, oh, okay, well, screw that. I mean, this, you're not going to get anybody. Not scalable. Does, not scalable. Who else does your dad know? Exactly. <laughs> and that, that's exactly what I asked. Like, is your, is your dad like, you know... Michael like Ovitz? Creative arts. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If he's Mike yeah. Ovitz, great. But if not, you don't have an Ovitz last name, so I'm good. Thanks. It's not going to work. YouTube, you can type in anything you want to learn. It's on YouTube. And now it's like I would have owned like 5% of the company. It's like a billion-dollar company. It would be a $50 million mistake. It's brutal. But you learn from it. You know, when you say yes to only one in a thousand pitches, you know, you don't have to say yes to the best one every time. If you say yes to one that's in the top 10 consistently, right. you, you could still make a pretty good return. Yeah, I said no to Twitter, Zynga, and Tesla. Because I wasn't angel investing at the time. Those were just my friend's companies mm -hmm. and I was just introducing them, but I said no to all of those. To, to, yeah, to Twitter, Tesla, Tesla, and uh, Zynga. Zynga. Well, Mark said like Zynga Poker... Uh, and I was like, yeah. It's like, I was like, how do you play this? Isn't that not legal? And yeah. he's like, when do you do virtual things? I was like, Mark, nobody's going to pay you for virtual coins. Like, poker players are not that stupid. He's like, oh, it's not about poker players. It's about like, like old ladies in like Milwaukee. <laughs> I'm like, 
that's not what poker's about. Because I was a poker player, so I just, like an idiot, yeah. thought, well, what you're taking the whole dynamic out of the game by not having m- real money. Well, you know, I, that's... I, I, so I thought when I first heard the pitch for Twitch, I literally said that's the stupidest thing. I mean, watching people playing games, that seems like... like so dumb. Like, so dumb. And then... And then uh, my and then there was a very much smarter person than me on my team, Ethan Kurzweil, who said to me, "No, no, you have to look deeper because this is a phenomenon, and people are doing this, and look at the numbers and all of that." Yeah. And as I looked at it, I said, "Oh," and um, you and placed invested. that bet. I placed that bet, but wow. uh, my initial reaction was, "Yeah, this is really, really dumb." dumb. And. That was a pivot out of Justin TV, right? Which is another strike against it because you're like, okay, these guys are just scrambling, right? Like they're pivoting out <laughs> well, of they had like a few good pivots out of that. Actually, that was more than social a, cam. It was like a fork. They did. They yeah, forked I, it. They forked it. That's a really interesting concept as founders. I don't know why mm. more founders don't pull that off. Is the fork? <laughs> it's like we have two great ideas. They're both working. Let's just literally. Go after both and take one VP and one president and just two founders. Go pursue both. It does, has that ever happened other than Twitch and Social Cam and Justin TV? I don't, I don't know another I example of that. I imagine so. I don't know. I just don't know another example of that. Yeah. But they had pivoted out of there. I knew that that was going to be a thing because I was in South Korea and I was going through the channels. And I get to a channel and I was like, oh, is that StarCraft? I, I play that game. And then I hit the next channel. There's another StarCraft channel. I hit next. There's another StarCraft channel. I was like, wait a second. Is something wrong with the TV? And then I was like, no, there's three channels of StarCraft on. What is going on here? And then there were people talking and there was picture in a picture. And I was like, what is this? And, you know, when you look at what the behavior is in China and South Korea, they were just exhibiting different behaviors that made it here. What's the secret to investing in enterprise stuff versus consumer stuff? Like you have you have to change your mindset a little bit and think about it differently. Different frameworks. Well, what I think what's interesting is that the two are converging more and more. Uh, when you're when we're high, when we're building teams now to build enterprise software companies, we're actually looking for the people who think about UX and experience and onboarding and how do you. Because the best companies think like Atlassian, right? Where you you come in from solar winds, like you, you they're bottom up enterprise businesses. Zapier, which is one I'm in, you wow. you get just had the, weight on the pod Friday. You, you oh, great, great great founder, and you so you you're you're really delighting users mm. inside an enterprise, and that's how you're getting in. And so it's much more of a consumer like motion than going to a CIO with a pitch. Um, and and the way you win those those accounts is the same way you know you get somebody to put an app on on her phone and 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 start engaging, which is which is you you have to really think about this person's needs, emotional needs, other kinds of needs, how to make something super 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 easy to get a job done. You you give that to a person in you know the best way possible. You. You have growth hacking teams or data science teams that are A-B testing different, you know, different ways of where the paywall should be or what the app should look like or whatever. And you're bringing people on like consumers. They just happen to be employees of enterprises who ultimately are going to pay you six or seven figure subscriptions. 
If you are an accredited investor, you need to understand what a special purpose vehicle is, an SPV. An SPV is something I use all the time at thesyndicate.com in order to syndicate an angel investment. That means I'm sharing an angel investment with up to 250 other accredited investors, and we can put up to $10 million in that SPV, and it's one line item on the cap table of the startup. And if you're an angel investor with a bunch of rich friends, you could start your own syndicate and you can power this through an SPV. So just like I have Jason's syndicate, you could have Susan or Joe's syndicate and you can do what I'm doing, which is getting a group of people together to invest together and to hopefully make amazing returns together. That is the goal and to support founders and innovation. Here at Launch, we could not be more pleased with our partnership with the team at Assure. That's A-S-S-U-R-E. And they power my syndicate, which is the largest one in the world, in fact, with over 4,000 members. Assure is the leading provider of special purpose vehicles. Those are SPVs and fund administration with over 2.5 billion in AUA. That's assets under administration. And over 5,000 completed transactions. We're like 130 of them. So they're doing this for a lot of people. They're doing it at scale. They're doing it professionally. And they're doing it with great customer service. They've developed an innovative software uh, system called Glassboard to automate the entire investment experience from entity formation to IPO. It's slick and it's beautiful. And Ashley, who manages my syndicate, loves the interface. Not only do investors love it, but founders love it as well as it keeps their cap tables nice and clean and nice and simple. You can get 20% off your first special purpose vehicle, SPV, by visiting assure.co slash angel. A-S-S-U-R-E dot co slash angel. Let's get back to this amazing episode. H- how did you do it back in the 90s when you were at Oracle? How did you get people to buy enterprise software back then? You can tell the most salacious Those, story. Well, I, I mean, Oracle is the is the you know best example of of elephant hunting rock star salespeople going out there bagging you know huge huge accounts. That was it. That's what that was the play. Sales there was driven. no yeah no bottom was, up top down no bottom up at all. Nobody really wanted to use Oracle. It was all sold. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't work now, does it? <laughs> uh, can you think of an example of that working in today's market? I can't. You know, I, like what's a company in the last five years that it's worked to have like a sales top-down driven culture where somebody writes a 10 Salesforce maybe? Well, so I don't want to name names because oh, okay. it's not a, it's not a, a flattering look. Ah, uh, but there are, you know, I see a lot of companies out there who really sell top-down, mm. sometimes some pretty shitty products, um, but they have the right they have the right, you know, boardroom connections to get in there to get, you know, boards to ask their chief whatever officers yeah. to look at something. And um that, you know, I that is something that tends to help you raise venture capital and then you raise VC and then you go do it more and you hire more salespeople. Um those are actually really good companies to compete against because the customers are usually not very happy with those products. Ah, you get and that so, like... You know, like you follow them in and you say, They got the okay, Achilles heel. Yeah. Yeah. They they sold top-down, so they don't have the loyalty from the front line that actually uses the product. Exactly. So, yeah, Salesforce has bottom-up and top-down. They For the big accounts, they have Salesforce. They have a Salesforce, I think. Well, at I, Salesforce. Although, I, I mean, from what I hear, the... 
the the product itself is quite long in the tooth and yeah people they're are, trying to fix that yeah so but what they have of course is this un you know ecosystem that's just you know amazing and and unique and so it's uh it's pretty compelling to use even if it is an old looking product yeah that is a challenge when you look at the old products they people get so familiar with them and they have so many hooks into them that even something like eBay or Craigslist from Force of Habit, like, to cha- did you hear Craigslist is making a billion dollars in revenue now? <laughs> yeah. Did you see that? That's unbelievable. And it's 50 people work there and a billion dollars in revenue. And they, they don't change the website all that often. I mean, they added maps, I think. So when you look at an apartment, it's on a map. That's, that's hot stuff. How do you explain something like <laughs> that? Like, when do you know to change the interface or not? Like, how, how do you look at a Craigslist as a venture capitalist and reconcile that one? Oh, I, I don't think Craigslist is killing it because they have, because of that interface. No. <laughs> it's just they, because it was a, you know, a brilliant value proposition when they yeah. started it. And sometimes when you, especially in marketplace-like dynamics, it's winner take all. If you're the first one there, like eBay, you're, it's winner take all. There's no way to, there's no way to create, you know, a something that can compete with Craigslist. Now, you know, there are many, many companies that compete with Craigslist in a vertical dimension and, you know, try to, you know, compete with them in different areas of listing. Yeah, chip chip something out. But the overall platform and say, we're going to build another Craigslist, but it's going to be better looking. It's like, that's that's not compelling. I want to go into the environment where somebody's actually going to respond to my ad. That's, That's the most compelling feature. When is the right time to sell a company? Because I remember Dropcam, which you were an early investor in, I believe. Yes. And uh, they sold, I think, for $500 million, right, yes. to, to Google. Ooh. And I was like, yum, yum. And I had heard about it. And I was trying to invest in it, you know, long before the $500 million. Oh. And I just thought, my God, that is going to go to the moon. The founders come to you and they say, we got a $500 million offer. You did the Series A or B, I assume? The seed. You did the seed of... Oh my lord! Of Dropcam, you did the seed. That's like a five million dollar round. It's a hundred x, maybe two or something. Oh, okay. It's like a two hundred x investment. My uh, lord! It was. It was an. I think it was a hundred. Yeah, oh yeah, or something. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. But they come to you and say Google wants to buy it. Yeah. What is what is the conversation like back then about should we keep going or not? Now that was I think ten years ago versus today. Would the advice have changed? Because you said the game keeps changing. You got to adapt. Would you have given them the same advice? Did they sell too early? And and how do you manage that with founders who, I think they were first-time founders. I'm pretty sure they came out of another startup. I forgot which one. They weren't PayPal people, were they? No. They were out of some other startup. I don't remember. Yeah, but how Greg, do you ha- D- Greg Duffy. Yeah. Um, I remember those guys. I met them. And I was so taken by the first version of that drop cam. I loved it. Yeah, so, well. How do you make that decision to sell? Okay, well, I, I have less wisdom with respect specifically to Dropcam because I wasn't on the board of that company. Okay. Um, but I, but you know, I did talk to Greg along the way, um, and I've been involved in a lot of companies where we did sell. Uh, and unlike a buy decision, a sell decision is not one you can look back on and say was it the right one or the wrong one because you don't know how the other path would have would have right. come about. The alternate universe is uh, not available to you. Exactly. Now, having said that. I sold Twitch way too soon. Mm. That one was a mistake. That was eight fifty, a billion. It was like a billion. That. Yeah. Um, and and to Emmett's credit, he was 
not in, he was he was not a big seller mm. um and uh and you know we should have listened to him cuz that would have been worth at least 10x if we held it just another two or three years. Uh, but in the case of Dropcam, and in the case of like many other companies I've sold at like half a billion or more, including Skybox and, and others I can think of, I think it was the right decision because we were getting a strategic multiple for a company that, that really was not in a position to generate that kind of financial value anytime soon. There was still so much we would have had to do in order to build a company that would be worth $500 million that would be valued at $500 million by say some Wall Street investor who doesn't care what we're making and is just looking at the financial aspects of the business. Ah, so that's the lens. The strategic is looking at it. They have their own thesis, which yeah. is, hey, you're part of Amazon. You're part of Google. We can do something. In this case, Nest. In this yeah. case, building out the Nest portfolio. And, right. and Dropcam really has become kind of the the, the anchor of the Nest Absolutely. home automation thing. Yeah, I am um, all in on Nest, yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm not, I mean, Nest, of course, is part of Google and and um, and I'm not quite willing yet to, to acknowledge that passing on Google was a mistake. I think the jury's still out. Um, yeah. Uh, but- uh, We'll see. Yeah, I'm still, I still think it was the right decision. It's hard to hold, isn't it? <laughs> like selling and- Sell, buying shares in a seed stage company, pretty easy. You know the maximum you can lose. You put in 500K, a million, you lose a million or 500K. Selling, you get a, when it's a big number, like you're saying, and it's disproportionate to what Wall Street would value it based on a price to earnings ratio. Yeah, okay. You, you beat what the street would have paid. And we got a lot more work to do. But holding, ooh, that's the hard one, isn't it? Yeah, well, so, and holding also after hold. you go public. Um, would you hold after after a public offering? So uh, you got an anecdote there. Let's hear it. I can see it in your eyes. You know what we? I see it in your eyes. Fifty percent of the time, we sell at the right time. We have <laughs> like we're we're pretty good at picking private companies, but picking public companies, that's you gotta. What's the one that's had the best run post your investing in it privately? Shopify. Yes, Toby. Yeah. I interviewed him. Where is he, in Ottawa? Yeah. I interviewed uh, him back in the day when it was like a 100-person company. He was on the podcast. And that has gone supernova. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait you're I saying don't... you held or you didn't? No, we didn't. We didn't hold. didn't hold. We didn't hold. So, I mean- You if missed we... the 10X post. I, yeah, I, don't, I haven't done the math, but um, that's- I, I, And I haven't, you know, there may, be other, there may be others in our portfolio that are worse, but that one's just kind of recent, so the- Wound is still fresh. <laughs> yeah, I'll just go ahead and push these Kleenex a little closer. <laughs> no, I mean, I am doing the same thing with Uber. I still own, uh, I like about half my position. And Holy know, ha- Oh, poor you. I, well, poor you. I, and everybody's like, you, are you selling? Are you selling? <laughs> these other early stage investors are texting me. And they're like, you know, high profile. Bill, like, are you holding? Are you holding? I was like, I'm holding the other half. I made a decision in my mind. I sweep half, buy houses, you know, have that yeah. foundation safety. Put it in bonds. The other half, I believe it's a 10x from here. I don't know if that happens in five or 15 years, but I think it's worth holding. So that doesn't really work for VCs because we are, we're either in or we're out. If we're in, we're going to be on the board. We're going to be actively trying to help the company. And if I'm going to sell half, am I still going to do all of that? I'm I'm either going to do all that work or I'm not. If I am, I want to be still in it and and benefiting. So um, I understand that because when my guy TK left and now it's DK... I was like, I think I'm out. But then 
Dar, I started to like warm up to him. I'm like, I think that like the apology tour and the like clean up the mess tour um, and really listen deeply to Wall Street is working and the path to profitability is pretty clear. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovis have in common? Well, they're all using NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. If you want to take your company from 2 million to 10 million or from 10 million to 100 million, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools to turbocharge your growth. With NetSuite, you'll get the full picture of your business from finance to inventory onto HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow in just one place right there from your phone or computer. NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence because you've got that dashboard right there with all your information. That's why their customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. You heard that number right, 19,000 companies relying on NetSuite. It's also the last system you'll ever need. You're not going to rip it out. Nope. NetSuite business grows here. So to schedule a free product tour right now and receive your free guide, the six ways to run a more profitable business, go to netsuite.com slash angel. That's right, netsuite.com slash angel, netsuite.com slash angel. Uh, thanks for supporting the pod. And let's get back to this amazing episode. What do you think of the anti-tech backlash? When you and I came into the industry, I came into the industry in the early 90s uh, as a journalist, people were pretty enamored and enthusiastic and rooting for the nerds and rebels of Silicon Valley. And now they're just dunking and hating everything. What went wrong? What, what went wrong? What did we do wrong? What what is the pre- what do you think of this press like just constantly anti everything? Yeah. Well, I think Cuz uh, you're pressure. You don't do a lot of press. And thank you for coming on the pod. I know you're not like a big like go on the dude speaking tours and press stuff. Uh Well, you know, I I think I think we're going to maybe talk about this in a little while when we when we touch on bubble proof. Yeah. Um but you know, I I think that we deserve it, okay? I mean, I think Silicon Valley, like in many ways, is much worse than anyone thinks. <laughs> I mean, we are we are really living in this bubble, and and uh, and you know, I see it every day when people are designing products for billionaires instead of designing products for for people, everybody else, yeah. um, civilians. As we say in the business, yeah. Um, so a little condescending, I know. Yeah, I don't. Uh, anyway, I, I and I think that you know the way that we, uh, way, you know, many people flaunt wealth, and the way many people talk about the inevitability of our success and our genius, I think, is uh, quite off-putting, uh, appropriately. And I think so. There's a little bit of, I think, humility that that needs to, uh, needs to. Uh, come to Silicon Valley. Um, I think, and then of course, you know, there's the fact that we really, uh, you know, through the, I think Facebook is of course getting the brunt of the anti-tech backlash because of, you know, their alleged complicity or recklessness in, uh, in the 2016 election. Um, I, I think, you know, that's somewhat, Personally, I think that's somewhat 
well-deserved. Um, I, I do. I mean, if you think about it, he came into the industry, and I thought when I first met him, like I met him when it was still just on college Mark, campuses, yeah. Mark, and I, I was not impressed by him, and I, I felt like he was not really thoughtful. Right, and you meet some people. We get to meet some really extraordinary people in the position we're in. You, and I think this is the, one of the least thoughtful people I've ever seen you know, or ever talked to. And his philosophy was move fast and break things, and it remained that even when the business started to get to scale and have a lot of power. And you know, at some point in my career, a very close friend of mine who was an elder statesman pulled me aside and said, "Hey, schmuck, you made it." You can stop fighting and stop swinging your elbows because I was a fighter early in my career as a journalist. And I changed my game a little bit. I said, you know what? I'm not going to pick fights every day of my life and be crazy. And I think Mark never changed that move fast and break things when he got to hundreds of millions and then billions of users. When you got billions of users and you start breaking things, you know what? You might break democracy. You know, you might break uh, <clears throat> a bunch of dissidents in a foreign country who are going to be murdered and tortured and reeducated because you're handing over their information. Like you got to take the work more seriously than when I, you have a billion than a hundred. In 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 2016, I went to Facebook to the campus to meet with the people in charge of news to say, "Listen, you got to do something about this." Yeah. And I gave them a path. I said, "Listen, forget about trying to find fake news. You can't find fake news because news right. you don't know if it's fake. But we can start vetting the sources, and you could, and we can vet." whether journalists are following the rules of journalism, just like scientists follow the rules of science. There are Fact. scientists who do, and there are those who are not scientists, and they don't. Scientists can be wrong, but they're still valid scientists if they follow the rules of science. Same thing with journalists. Mm. Journalism, you can't, you know, if people now people don't like stories and they say it's fake news. It's only fake news if the journalist didn't do his or her job right. And we can actually audit journalists and see if they're doing their job right. It's not that hard. And we can even do it in an open way on Wikimedia where you take news, whether it's print or podcasts or whatever it is, scrutinize them publicly and say, are you following the rules of journalism? That's a great idea. I, and, and, so I, and, I got, and I got the Newsium, which is the news association, yeah. to say, we'll do it. Get, like, we will yeah. run this. And yes, I said, indeed. Facebook, Newsium's ready to do this right now. All you got to do is put a little badge on the ones that get vetted. Okay. Yeah. And it'll cost like ten thousand dollars per audit. It'll cost nothing. You can take the top two hundred journalist sources in the country. Amazing. And then every, people will see the badge, and that's those are the ones they'll share. Those are the ones you put in the feed. Right. Don't censor anything. Anybody can print anything they want, but we're just not going to give them the badge. Just like an audited financial statement, we're going to say we checked, not that these numbers are right, but that you have controls in place. And that you have an organization that corrects itself and has controls. We can do that for journalism. And they said, no, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I went back again in so 2017. Them on the plate. I did. Newsium was ready to do this. I went to Newsium said, we'll do it. And, um, and then I went back in 2017. I said, it's getting worse. Oh. Do it now. Yeah. And they said, Save the you know franchise. what? We just did a test and, you know, Users didn't like the idea of vetting sources, and what? I said, "Did you did you tell them it would be done openly and publicly with like open rules?" Yeah, and sunlight. They said no. I said, "Well, do it again." They said, "Well, we already ran the experiment, and <sighs> Mark, like we already told Mark that it's not going to yeah, work." The God King. Well, we well, already we said were, thumbs down. I said, so. "Well, go tell them again. You didn't do it right." And they yeah, said, no, "No, I'm not going to do that." He's got sycophants around him. I, I think it's a big problem when you get powerful and rich. Well, and people are depending on you for. Big chunks of cash, man. Getting the truth is hard. It's hard, right? I mean, this is where a lot of leaders go wrong. You, they, 
they can't be told the truth. The people around them just won't tell them the truth. Who's the best leader you ever worked with? When you, when you, when you look at these like on an entrepreneurial level, just people who you were so impressed, whether you, whether you invested yeah. or not. So but I, pound there's for like pound. two models. There's like yeah. the founder and the CEO. Right. In terms Let's of the just... CEO, it's Jeff Weiner at LinkedIn. That killed guy, it. he killed it. And he managed to somehow <clears throat> take all these different, you know, he hired great people and, and he, you know, like fought multiple fires at once on multiple fronts. And he yeah. was, and, and it I wasn't clear a of a business job. model, right? The business model was not clear. They had, and the site was slow. The architecture was terrible. Right. And he went in there and he said, I'm going to be the product manager. I remember he, he was exactly. on the pod and he told me, I'm going to fix the product yeah. myself because it's um, not getting fixed. And, you know, we talk about consumerization, you know, yeah. I'm going to put like pictures there, you know, we're going to, yeah. but the, when he came in, there was still a concern that Facebook was going to roll over us and do professional social graph, right? right. And, <laughs> um, and yeah. he he did a great job there. On the founder side, it's got to be uh, Peter Beck. I'm sorry to all the other founders I work with. Uh, you're all wonderful. I love yes. you all. Um, uh, I, I, I just want to shout out to Peter Beck at Rocket Lab because that guy is, uh, he's all about the mission. Um, what did, explain to me what Rocket Lab does. Rocket Lab is... Uh, as he would say, opening space for business. Uh, rocket Lab has developed the world's only small payload rocket, which means that it's not about size, it's about frequency and reliability. All the rockets in the world before were all, were all made bigger and bigger and bigger to deliver school bus size satellites to geosynchronous orbit. Super powerful, super huge. It takes you know six years to build the rocket. It takes five hundred million to a billion dollars to buy the rocket. Um, but today, what we want to put in space is not are not these huge mainframes, but networks of tiny little cell phones, if you will, that are disposable. Um, but you can, you know, you can use cell phone parts, and you could make them super super cheap, and you can ride Moore's laws; they get better and better. Totally different model for space, but it doesn't work with the big rockets. No. You need you need rockets that can deliver lots of small satellites. Every week, when you need it, where you need it, pinpoint, and that's exactly what Rocket Lab just in time rockets built just in time delivery to space. These are for yep. these low Earth orbit, like uh, their sizes of like what, like a, a small car, lunchbox. Uh, so, Kleenex this, box. This Kleenex box here is like probably about maybe two thirds the size of a, of the most typical CubeSats that are going Amazing. into low Earth orbit today. Think like a toaster, a toaster, um, and, and like a and, DeLonghi. Yeah, so uh, Spire Global, for example, and Planet, those are the two largest Planet constellation. Labs. Yeah, I think that now they call themselves just, oh, just Planet. Planet. So Planet and Spire are the he two was on the too. largest uh, constellation, CubeSat constellation operators. Yeah. Um, they're both toaster size. One of them looks at the Earth. The other one listens to the Earth. Um, the one that I'm invested in is Spire Global. We track ships, planes, and weather. And we're adding new applications all the time. Ships, planes, and weather. Why? So hedge fund folks can like trade on data? Like, For weather? Uh, well, yeah. Like this, yeah. I, I always hear the, that that data is really valuable to people who are trading the markets and so making bets. So definitely financial sector is yeah. a customer for weather data, but yeah. it's actually the larger customers are in agriculture and logistics. Hmm. So where do you, you know, and, and also to some degree disaster relief, trying Got to it. figure out you know, where to put. Any of those three-letter agencies like those kind of satellites? Uh, they might. We gener we're generally focused on commercial, not military applications. Yeah. Um, and, and, the other, and the other, of course, 
So not three-letter, but four-letter, because NOAA is a very big customer. NOAA used to get all our weather data from American-built satellites in space, and Congress really, starting at the during the global financial crisis, put an end to the United States building our own weather satellites and said we should start buying commercial data. Yeah. And Spire is the is today the largest collector of weather data in space. Yeah, Michael Lewis did that whole little short book on uh, weather and data and just the Trump administration just gutting that agency at some point. And it was just super scary. Like little, he did a little micro like book for Audible. Um, Zapier, how did you meet them? It was. You realize I don't the company's rem- getting huge. Are you on the board of that one, or well, or are you just um, we don't have we don't have offices. We don't have a board. So you know, Wade and I get together every month. That's yeah. the equivalent of a board meeting. Wow. Um, the the uh, uh, I don't remember exactly how I met Wade. It may have been Sunil Nagaraj who introduced us, or maybe James Cham. I think I should shout out James Cham at Bloomberg. Uh, who, when he was working at Bessemer, uh, anyway. Um, so, yeah, you know, I met I met and Wade it's and his co-founders. A couple of hundred people now. He told me he's over fifty million in revenue. He's just crushing it for this company that makes this middleware, the, well, this no-code stuff. How did you know that was going to be a good investment? Because that was not an obvious one. That there would be a business model, or that no-code, or that these APIs would take over the world. It's a little embarrassing my line of thinking, which was Let's that, which was that I was, I was wrestling, I was trying to figure out home automation in my home. And I had you know, cameras here and, and music play Sonos players, and I had different things. And what I really wanted was information from one system to do something in another system. Right. So, uh, so this if thing was yeah. really, really neat. If this, then that. Yeah. And so I start, so I, I thought this if thing seems like this is really a useful way to integrate systems if they have APIs and you can you can build this other layer really, really easily. And then Wade came along and said, that's what we're going to do for the cloud. We're going to do this for business. Mm. That's like no-brainer. And I thought, okay, it's probably a better idea than doing it for my house. Absolutely. I mean, home automation is tiny, but like it's now taking over business. So much of our business today and so many of my startups – are like, yeah, we can just use Zapier for that. Zapier will make you happier. Just make a zap. Just make a zap. We'll just we'll just pipe it from here to there. And I had the same experience. If this, then that, and Zapier were both out at the same time. And I don't know if you remember, but Twitter and Instagram got in a fight and they wouldn't let Instagram photos uh, embed on Twitter. So you'd have to post a photo on Instagram, then post it on Twitter and save the one with the filter. And Or you could zap it. Or you could zap it. And it was like, they'll just automatically cross post everything on Twitter. Great, you're saving me like, I'm doing like three or four of these photos a week. Great, saving yeah. me time. But that's like one of those crazy, non-obvious ones where the market showed up later. And I think Zapier is actually playing an important role in the ecosystem because it's really making it easier for enterprises to buy best-of-breed SaaS applications, knowing that the integration is pretty easy because they can yeah. just zap it, as opposed to having to buy you know, a, a broad SaaS app, like an ERP system, which is what enterprises used to do. Um, so it really One is system to unite them all yeah. like was this crazy idea and you had to have all these developers doing it now it's like oh yeah if somebody like asks us a question in our you know question form we could just pipe it into this you know air table or this you know google sheet and put it into slack and put it into zendesk whatever you're using um when you 
look at who makes, we, we, we asked this question earlier about who's making good venture capitalists today. Is it growth and product people? Because I keep seeing growth and product people showing up. And it used to be that product people, and I'm just sort of stitching together some of the things you said here, like it used to be top-down sales. And I think a lot of salespeople became venture capitalists back in the day. And a lot of finance people did. Okay, that makes sense. That's what drove the industry. But you just said it's all bottom-up now, and it's all product design and growth. So is it what drives business is what makes you qualified to be an investor? Like that skill set? So there are there are different kinds of venture capital. I, and one thing I think it's helpful to do is to talk about the two vent, two different asset classes. We call them both venture capital, but there's old venture capital, which I still do, which is trying to figure out what businesses are going to work. And and it's hard. And how, how does that work? That's like intellectually saying there should be something here in like this open plot of land. There should be something here. Yeah, there's different ways of doing it. Some people do it without really thinking about the business too much, but latching themselves onto brilliant founders and saying, "This is a great founder. I don't really understand what she's doing, but I think I, like I want to back this person." Um, and then there are other folks, I think, like me, who approach it as mapping out new areas and trying to think there should be companies that do this, this, and this. Let me go find them, right? And that's a different way. But that's like old venture capital. And because companies now get much bigger before they go public, the venture capital community has grown up to fund companies through much, much later stages uh, when they used to be public. And now most of the dollars in venture capital clearly are going into these big checks in companies, unicorns and and others. Um, and most of the dollars are going there. And it's a very different thing because in these companies, you're not asking, is this going to be a successful business? You know it's a successful business. Yes. The product market fit is there. People are already saying, don't take this away from me or I'll kill you. And the you know subscription revenue is doubling every year. And you don't really have to be a genius to figure out that this is a good business. So it's more about winning the deal. And what can your venture firm do to help this company you know, and make them feel like you're a good partner? Right. And and it has to do with, you know, how quickly do you move? Do you have, you know, good terms? But also after you invest, are you do you have firm resources that are going to help us with recruiting and marketing and other things? Are you going to, do you have a an ecosystem of other entrepreneurs I can talk to and Which learn from? Which do you from? like better? You like the early stage, more artistic, bespoke process? Oh. Or you like the later stage? Personally, I love the, I do the early stage. Yeah. That's just what gets me up in the morning. Right. I am interested in, if you look at what I'm investing in, it's in robots, quantum computers, and space. Um, and none of those have really yet got product market fit. <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> so, robots in factories are crushing it. Yeah. Robots outside of factories, you got right. the Roomba. I got Cafe X, which figured it out, but that's been a lot of right. work to figure out just how to make a robotic Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. It's a lot of work. Hardware's hard. Quantum computing, is that real? Quantum computing is definitely real. Okay, it's, why do people say it it's works. not? And why do people dismiss it? There's a group of people who are like, this is ridiculous. So there are people who say quantum computing is not real. Those people are forming those opinions based upon very old information. There is absolutely no doubt that there are many working quantum computers in the world today. They simply aren't yet big enough to do anything commercially useful. Mm. So Sounds familiar. So um but 
the number of entangled qubits that we can get keeps rising every year. The number of entangled qubits without too much error coming out of it, I should say, is rising every year. And when that number gets up to maybe 100 entangled qubits or 200 entangled qubits, we will have computers that are not just more powerful than the most powerful supercomputers on Earth, but a thousand, a million, a trillion times more powerful, you know, easily. What is a qubit for people who don't understand what that is? I, I mean, I've heard it's like a three-state moment. You could be, instead of binary one and zero, you kind of have three states, either it's one, zero, or not. So it's so weird. It's so crazy yeah. that, you know, it's just, it's hard to believe. And this is why yeah. Einstein didn't believe it. But it's unlike a bit, which either has charge or it doesn't have charge. So it's a one or a zero because it has charge or it doesn't. And it flows through a circuit either with charge or without charge. A qubit has both. It is both zero and one at the same time. Right. It's not one or the other, but you don't know which one it is. Right. That's actually, if you've heard that, you've, yeah. you've, that was somebody Bad expression. It is actually both at the same time. Right. Because that is actually how the universe works. Until you measure something, it does not have a value. Spin, charge, location, velocity, it doesn't. And so we, so if you isolate a particle and you don't measure it, which means you don't interact with it in any way, it's like the cat in Schrodinger's box, then it actually is not zero or one. And you can, you can pass it through the circuit along with the other zeros and ones if they're entangled and, and you are simultaneously processing all possible combinations of zero and one that are flowing through that circuit. So it's a massively parallel, parallel computer. And if we can get 100 qubits all entangled flowing through a computer like that, then every time the circuit operates, it's actually operating two to the 100 times. Crazy. So you're going to literally have it be able to crack the deepest encryption that binary computers made. Yes, eventually that will eventually. happen. It's going to be a hell of a year. But there's, don't worry, <laughs> that's like, there's, there's quantum, there, there are algorithms that quantum computers won't be able to crack. We'll have to... We'll have to swap out the old ones and put in the new ones. And for five years, everyone's going to freak out and it's going to be like Y2K. And then it too shall pass. It too shall pass. I, I just want to know where Jimmy Hoff is buried because once we get that, we're going to crack into the CIA. We'll figure out where he is. He might be still alive. He could be living somewhere. So you said robotic. What are you doing in robotics? I think in I saw him on the Muni. But on the Muni? Could yeah. be wrong. Could be wrong. Uh, he was talking to himself. Robotics, which, where are you going for robotics? You, you, you're into the Boston Dynamics kind of stuff, out of the factory, in the factory? So mostly mostly two kinds that I'm that I'm most interested in. One is flying robots, so drones. Oh, yes. And then and the second one is using robots for food production. Okay. Are you in Zoom? Are you in anything specific? Nope, I'm in, well, I am in one that I'm super excited about. It's called Forever Oceans, and huh. it's, a, it's a robotic fish farm. And we use robots oh. to farm fish. And because we do that, for the first time, you can put farms in the ocean. We submerge the cages 15 meters below the waves, and and now the fish are you don't you don't disturb the cages. Current goes through, so you don't have to worry about antibiotics. So there's no antibiotics. Oh, they're not pouring gallons of exactly. antibiotics into the water, oh. which is what every farmed fish you've ever eaten has, I know, it's right? A big problem. Yeah. And it turns out that 99% of the liquid water on Earth is in the oceans, and yeah. so by doing this in oceans, we can now actually scale up fish farming, 
with wow. the healthiest fish you've ever eaten. No and mercury, no antibiotics. Collects the biggest fish when it's the right size. The robots do different things. They do things like, um, in case any fish die, they'll take them out so they don't infect the other fish. They clean the they'll clean the cage so there's no biotic material. Huh. We have systems that feed the fish. We have an AI that measures fish happiness, so it watches the huh. fish twenty four seven because. Look, a happy fish is a tasty fish, okay? No doubt. And and it may, they grow faster, they don't yep. die, they and so we have an AI that trained by a fish biologist scientist from University of Virginia um, can tell you if the fish are happy and if they're not, then we can deal with whatever predator or intruder or storm or hunger or whatever it is that's bothering them. What do you think in the um you have drone deploy, I know that one. Yeah. That's doing like checking railroad tracks and stuff like that? They automatically deploy and come back? Like they do sorties? Is that what they're doing? So, so you know, pe- people have been saying for a while, oh, look at all the things you can do with a drone. You can fly it up and look at a roof for solar. You can look at railroad tracks. You can look at construction sites. Yeah. You can look at your farms. You can do all that. Well, that's all true if you know how to pilot a drone, you know how to collect all the images that you take and then stitch them together into a map and then you know how to look at those images and actually get any information out of them. So it turns out that like, it's, those things are actually hard to do. And what Drone Deploy does is it does all of it for you. So you get your drone, download Drone Deploy. With your finger, you map out what you want to look at. It automatically flies the drone for you, collects all the images, puts it together, does a 3D rendering if you want. And then it has analytics. So it'll look at things like crop health or how many cars or like whatever it is you're trying to look at and it'll do that for you all automated. So it's like the, I mean, I think it's the most interesting, you know, commercial enterprise software company for drones. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, I'd say most of the market maybe, I mean, it's doing yeah. very well. What do you think of these VTOLs that Larry Page is investing in? And- I want one. It's going to work. I want one. It's definitely going to work. It's it just, feels safe to me, like, com- I mean, <laughs> tragically compared to helicopters, like having eight rotors and they're doubled up. So you have 16. Yeah. You know, they're um, pretty fail safe. And I don't know if you've seen these videos where in China they're like taking sticks and whacking some of these drones to see if they can get them to recover and destabilize. And it used to be that like you'd whack it and it'd be like, now you whack it. It's like, it just instantly gets back into place. And you're like, whoa, that is scary. So. I don't really have the the cojones to invest in them right now because of the regulation. I mean, we talked about regulation earlier. Um, they will be allowed some, at some point. Um, there's just too much value in them. But the FAA moves very, very slowly, very cautiously. And it, like, if we're not even, if they won't even let a little quadcopter, you know, bring you a, you know, a burger. They're not going to let these VTOLs fly people around for a very long time. It's... You know, it's one of the things about regulation. They're incentivized by, you know, the, the tragedy, not the overall win, right? And I think it's why China, if you look at self-driving, like authoritarian regimes, like they're going to have self-driving and VTOLs first. And there's this company in China doing VTOL uh, test flights right now in China on Hong Kong and everywhere. And it works. I mean, and it's impressive to watch a human get in a quadcopter, you know, maybe they have, I think they have eight rotors on this thing and they're doubled. So I guess that's 16 blades and it looks smooth as butter. I think they're going to be the safest form of travel, like including cars, buses. Well, as someone who lives in a very, very wooded area of California, I, I'm, yeah. I, I, I 
for me, it may be the safest way to escape a wildfire uh, if you're in a place with a wildfire. Absolutely. So, yeah. If you're in Napa or Woodside or something and something goes on fire, you could just go straight up. Yeah, because otherwise I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm going to – you don't know where the fire is. You don't know which direction to go. And yeah. uh, with one of those, zippity-doo-dah. It's, it's going to work. I'm super bullish on those. I think yeah. that – I think those can arrive before self-driving, in fact. Well, I don't – Over I, water? It's a, Again, I, I just think the right. I think it's just the FAA is very cautious, and there are all kinds of there are all kinds of issues with flying people around in these machines, uh, including, for example, even setting fires yourself. If one of those things crashes, it will start a fire. Yeah, uh, that's possible. Yeah. So there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. I see you got into Smule. Oh, that's a great company. I had the founder on. I, I've been practicing guitar. I got a Mark Knopfler like a fetish right now. I'm trying to like learn how to play electric guitar like Mark Knopfler and Awesome. Smule is just on it's fire. It's dear to my heart that company. You like it? Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm a user. I love it. Oh, really? What are you a piano singing? I'm a guitar? singer. I sing uh, in an a cappella group. I heard that. And and they just released a singing product, right? It's Well, it's now the main product is now sing. That's it's a karaoke product, social karaoke, oh, and right. you actually sing in duets and groups and you can sing oh, your part. Oh, right. You know what? I was And we bring of, together yeah. You know, you know, we bring this together into videos yeah. of people singing together. People so it's are about, really into it's it. It's about social music. It's not just about. Doing I was just it thinking yourself. about musician, which I'm using for guitar, not Smule. I, I just juxtaposed okay. my mind. I don't know. If you, have you seen Musician? No. Musicians is great iPad app. You put it up, and as you play guitar, it hears the chords and tells you if you're doing it right, and tells you how close you came. Oh, that that note was too early. That note was too late. That note was right on time. And you play these games, and you're finger picking the board and. They it's just, awesome. yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, all right, listen, I could keep you here forever uh, and a half. <laughs> um, if people want to meet you, should they go through like your, oh, oh, by the way, you did your own, we'll end with this when we go to break, but just in terms of people contacting you, do you have like a bunch of rules for people contacting you and they have to go through one of your founders or <laughs> they got to go through a friend or can they just email you a pitch if it's great? Like, do you like, open emails you, when people send an email, or are you anti-opening emails from I, founders? I, I get a lot of emails, and I have a hard time going through them all. Um, LinkedIn is a good way. I ah. invested in LinkedIn, so I try to stay active in that community. Yeah, um, so that's nice. a good way to reach me. All right. I like it. Now, what is Bubble Proof? You made a documentary, a mockumentary. What is this? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So this is a – there's a there's – a, uh, a webisode series called Bubble Proof that Michael Furtick and I made uh, to, you know, honestly just poke fun at Silicon Valley. It's kind of like a more, it's like HBO Silicon Valley, but more inside baseball. Um, people outside Silicon Valley watch it and say, I don't get it. People inside Silicon Valley think it's, they tell us it's kind of funny. Um, so go to bubbleproof.tv to watch it. Uh, there's a, the first season is out, 10 episodes, and um, there may be a you, second season released very soon. D you did this yourself. You funded it yourself. You didn't go to Netflix. This is just like your passion project. This was, yes, this was right. a passion product. The, the, the motivation was not profit. It was, to, uh, it was to amuse and inform and, mock. and, and, and warn that oh. Silicon Valley is, is much worse than you think. <laughs> on that note, uh, David Cowan, thanks for coming on the pod. You can follow him on the Twitter, David Cowan, C-O-W-A-N. He's a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and here we go. He is Silicon Valley's most intoxicating innovator. I'm Michael's closest confidant. Mike Maples is my enemy's 
You know, we go juicing. Uh, I'm a grapefruit juice man myself. Whoa, 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 whoa. One of Silicon Valley's brightest stars shocks the international business community by walking away from innovation entirely. What does Garfunkel do when Simon moves on? What is he qualified to do? I'd rather be a sparrow than a snail. It seems the question everyone wants the answer to is, what's next? I know, I want the answer. We're gonna start a fund. Venture fund? I raised $260 million for you. Is that a lot? We're back. I'm back. I'd been Michael's partner. Now I'm his mentor. So we're ingratiated. Smart mouth. Slothly. Jail away. Expectation. We are huge fans. We love hearing that. Oh, um, yes. Huge fans of yours too. You and Bessemer by extension have ceded unprecedented amount of control to Michael. Seems like everyone's talking about yeah. it. You know, even the partnership. I'd like to invest $3 million in your company. Uh, don't you want to see our deck? Were you thinking more like three and a half million dollars? Oh, so you're saying you want to do more deals faster till the fund is depleted? We have already made four more investments this morning. $24 million in totals. I, I'm, I'm thankful to Michael Furtick. He's terraforming. This is what Silicon Valley needs. There's overwhelming consensus that the tech bubble will burst. This could be like the dark ages. The world goes hungry. The world goes hungry. The press is right. This fund is off the rails. Okay. How much time do I have? I'm an airpod, dude. Go ahead. I and mentoring very, very hard. You see, this is what makes Heroic Ventures so special as a partnership that is beyond a partnership. It's more like a brotherhood between us. And we finish each other's... Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Mm -hmm.